0: Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. Today is February 2nd, 2024. Welcome to our Friday show, where we sit down with a group of friends, and then we talk about the news that's been going on in the last couple of days. So I have brought several friends along with me today. One is Kirsten Korosek, TechCrunch's transportation editor and senior reporter. Hi. Hi. So happy to be here today. Most excellent. And in a surprise and a lovely little bit of news, we have Corrine Levy with us today. She's been on the show before, but this is her first time ever sitting down with us for an entire news roundup. Corrine, you are a managing editor on the TechCrunch Plus team. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show again.
0: Absolutely. And if you're thinking to yourself, where is our dear friend Marianne Azevedo? Well, she is off taking care of family this week. She shall return. She has all of our love and support and we'll have her back in your ears before you know it. But on the show today, we have an absolutely jam-packed episode. We are going to talk up top about the social media Senate hearing, then deals of the week. We have Zoom, Rampin Venue, and Metronome. And then for themes today, we're talking about layoffs in the world of fintech and what happens when you infuse AI into VC. But first, my friends, uh, yesterday, I don't know if you were glued to C-SPAN as I was, but a number of social media-ish CEOs were dragged before Congress, and then... I don't know how to describe it. Um, shout shouted at for hours, I think might be the fair way to say. It. Did you guys watch this?
1: I didn't actually watch it, but I have seen these before. And from what I got off of um, other news reporting, it was much more of the same, which is nothing. Yes. <laughs> nothing happened. Yes. Yeah, so
2: I caught a little bit of it, but I would love to hear what your worst part of it was. please. The, the worst part of it was um,
0: Senator Cotton haranguing the CEO of TikTok trying to figure out if he was a member of the Chinese Communist Party, even though he's Singaporean. And this led to a really kind of racist series of questions about like, do you have a Chinese passport? He's like, no, I'm Singaporean. Do you have dual citizenship? Nope, just Singapore. And it went on and on. It was just, I didn't know that the number one factory for cringe in the world was Congress. But now I think I've been convinced that this is the bottom <laughs> of, the, uh, of the barrel.
2: Any takeaways from it? I mean, I think we've all been here before. It's very deja vu. And as someone who once had the pleasure of living in D.C. and covering the hill, I can tell you, wow, yep, I've seen that in person. Xenophobia on display and all that aside, it it does show that, A, again... Oftentimes, lawmakers are catching up with technology and yes. really show their lack of understanding around things. And I'm not saying every single one of them do, but it certainly is a proof point. And in this, I see this even on my own beat with autonomous vehicles. It's like they're catching up and making potential laws around subject matters that they don't totally understand. Or the technology is already so much part of culture and society that it's very hard to claw back.
0: Yes, I I agree with that entirely. The only thing that I want to bring up for our friends who are with us today on the show is that it does appear that Section 230, which essentially provides a, a legal framework for protection for platforms to not be responsible for what their users post or share on those platforms, is bipartisanly hated. And I think this is a very dangerous moment for the Internet, for startups, for tech platforms, big and small, because it does appear that they have lost the Support of the congressional body that once gave them this protection, and I don't think we have the internet as we have it today without section
2: two thirty, at least in the u- the u s so i'm I'm worried I guess the question is then, is this theater or is there enough actual political will to really be a threat to section two thirty so you know we'll see what happens, but maybe we should talk about some actual material news that happened <laughs> this week <laughs> results.
0: I'm here for it. Let's go.
2: All right. Well, my deal of the week is a company uh, founded in 2015 called Zoom, Z-U-M, not the video streaming company that we're all familiar with and is publicly traded. No, this is a company that was founded by a woman named Ritu Narayan in, like I said, 2015. And it's all around, I hate to use the word disruption, but disrupting or changing old school Ways of how kids got to school, student transportation. So we all know how, at least how I used to get to public school was walk to the corner, get on a yellow school bus. Um, These are diesel. You go to your school and that's how you get to school. Basically, what they created was it's a two part. Building out a fleet eventually of all electric vehicles, a mix of buses, vans, things like that is not all electric today, but that's the eventual goal. So there's the emissions and health aspects of that, but also on the background, sort of a cloud-based analytics software that routes students smartly based on their needs and their location to and from school. So that's that's what the company does. And the news, the material piece, is that they raised one hundred and forty million dollars and their valuation is now one point three billion.
0: So many questions about this. One, I love the idea. Getting kids to school faster, better, more health orientedly wise. Love it. I mean, I grew up on the same buses that you did. And we used to sit in the back next to the big engine part because it was warmer that's not great. It's probably full of fumes. This is probably why I'm so dumb. I could have been smarter, but with the buses, they got me. Uh, but the real question is, is, okay, so some software, some EVs, some students. To me, it sounds like a really cool community idea, not a venture-backable startup. I'm clearly wrong about that, but it just sounds like a low-margin business to me, Kirsten. so what am I missing in this
2: model that makes it a, a unicorn that just raised nine figures? I only can answer part of that question because the company wouldn't answer my questions around financials. So things around revenue, revenue growth, except for to say things are great, which doesn't give me much information. (laughs) But what I can say is that it may be a low margin business, but it's certainly scalable because schools are everywhere. And the company is already working in a number of school districts in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Oakland, Seattle, Chicago, Nashville. These are huge districts with big problems. And I should say one of the biggest issues as another lifetime ago, when I was very young, I was an education reporter. Busing is directly linked in some cities to things like open enrollment and busing kids to certain schools to actually help with diversity in some cities, like including in Milwaukee. And there's very much an issue with finding drivers, enough drivers, and there's a lot of cost around it. So if you can find a way, school districts find a way to reduce costs, and maybe not use the giant school bus to pick the two kids up, save money, really recapture a lot of capital to already stress budgets.
0: All right. So, Corinne, you have a child that attends an educational facility. I'll leave it vague. Um, (laughs) What's your take
1: on this? So I'm really stoked on this, actually, because like you said, like, you know, walking down to the corner and there's the bus and it is full of fumes. You know, I live in California, so I'm all for the EV side of this. And if it's going to clean up, you know, the environment and what the kids are doing, then, you know, bring it on. I'm looking forward to it launching in the peninsula where I live, right south of San Francisco. You live in the
0: greater San Francisco, if you will. Correct. Uh, Pearson, though, so I do know they've landed some big contracts and those contracts, with different school districts can be worth, I think, up into the nine figures themselves.
2: Yeah, of course. And this is, again, where I would love to look under the hood, if you will, of this company and really know what their margins are and, and how sustainable it is. There's clearly a demand and a need for it based on my understanding of uh, the pressure on budgets and the capital costs of transporting students, which is something that is mandated. If we can do that more effectively, efficiently, and at the same time, achieve zero emissions. Great. Can the company make money though? In the meantime is kind of the big question here. Can it survive? But I think this is good news for them. They've certainly been growing. They're still at it. They survived COVID. I mean, that's kind of a feat in itself. So stay tuned on Zoom. I
0: have a question before we move on if sure. if scooters that are electric and were purchased with venture capital dollars were called micro mobility, if this is buses that are purchased with venture capital dollars, is this a macro mobility company?
2: <laughs> sure. Yeah, I suppose you could. No, can, we,
0: can we coin that? I'm not really yeah. kidding. I'm kind of yeah, asking. No.
2: Oh, sure. Let's call it macro mobility.
0: Nice. Okay, cool. Now we can move on. Thank
2: you. <laughs> coined here, coined here. Coined here by
0: three nerds who are talking through the news. All right, Karine, uh, you have a story from Ramp, which is a fintech company we have covered on this show ad nauseum because Marianne and I have known it since it was a little tiny thing, and apparently it has been busy with the checkbook.
1: Yeah, so it's actually went, you know, from being a tiny little thing to now being kind of a huge thing. And um, so this week it bought a company called Venue, which is an AI company uh, that was launched in 2022. It was for an undisclosed amount. I asked uh, around if I could find, you know, how much they bought it for, but nobody would tell me. So I guess they're not disclosing. Before that, they raised about $1.2 million from Sequoia and other big names. So we can kind of maybe guess around there what the value was when they bought it. This is Ramp's. Second acquisition in the past year to focus on procurement, which is, you know, simplifying vendor relationships, among other things. When they first got into it, it was August. So they're kind of, you know, ramping that up, ramping that up slowly, slowly. But the first AI acquisition was a company called Cohere.io. All that dot IOs always mess me up because I'm like, cohere, you have to say
0: it though, because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> cohere is a word. Coherence is a movie cohere.io is the startup. So I think you. Correct. it's like in the, in the late nineties when you had to say .com with everything. Cause no one knew what you were talking about. Like it wasn't Amazon. It was amazon.com. It's cohere.io.
1: What about the Facebook? Can I call it the cohere.io? Sure. That built an AI customer sur- uh, support tool. So they're slowly, slowly kind of, you know, flexing their AI capabilities You know, Brex is another one. It's main competitor. They are also going into AI. So I don't know. Is this like AI is taking over yet another segment? You know, what is this?
2: I have a couple of questions. So you said this is their second acquisition over the past year to build up procurement. So what does this company startup what gap does it fill that that first acquisition didn't? Is it really just an aqua hire type of situation where we're just grabbing talent, or is it really like there's some specific IP or you know specific software that that they're capturing here? And when those two pieces fit together,
1: it makes the perfect complete circle of technology. I think so. I think it's probably a little bit of both. They just entered the procurement space. So this is a, another way of simplifying that and adding whatever the, you know, the IP was from venue to their offerings, plus the talent, of course. But both Brex and Ramp have, you know, gone really hardcore for the enterprise market. And I think that when Ramp first went into procurement, their first, you know, big contract was with Shopify. So I think, you know, they're both kind of really targeting these big players. And so that means that they need like all the help that they can get. I think in this case, it was both the IP and the people.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, if you raise 1.2 and you sell, it's because you weren't making enough progress. No, no founder would sell that early on a normal venture capital cadence if they if they were crushing it because you can make a lot more money for yourself by staying indie. But that doesn't mean that it's a bad result. I mean, picking up ramp stock, which I presume this deal was partially in cash, partially in stock, just because why not? It's not a bad thing to hold on to. It's certainly not a, a failure, just not quite becoming as big as ramp did. The thing though is that, yeah, sure, Brex and Ramp both going after AI, both going after the enterprise, blah, blah, blah. But Brex is doing layoffs and Ramp is doing acquisitions. And those are pretty much on the opposite ends of the corporate health scale, Kirsten, right? I mean, it feels like a big distinction.
2: Oh, absolutely. It is. And we don't really know who's going to be... Corporations aren't who, what am I saying? Um, We don't really know people, my friend. (laughs) We don't really know which corporation strategy is going to be the winner until it all plays out, because as I've seen and you've seen, we've seen the companies that say, oh, there's a lot of consolidation happening in the marketplace right now. We were lean. Let's take advantage of this opportunity and spend money. That could turn out great. Or they're the ones that are like, ooh, we don't see economic conditions really improving. We're going to do some cuts now. Which one is going to be the winner in this is a little bit hard to tell. But I will say this. There's a lot of consolidation and opportunities happening right now, certainly in this fintech space. And there is, if you have the money for it and you're not overspending and you've been fairly strict with your spending, this is a good opportunity.
0: Agreed, agreed, agreed. I would not be shocked to see more of these smaller dollar implied fintech tuck in deals. A lot of things got built that might be more features than products. And as some of the unicorns in the fintech world look around with some extra cash, why not grab it? So more of that to come.
1: And just real quick, on the other side of it, for the AI companies, you know, I read a story recently that said that they are having a hard time finding a place, finding money, finding, you know, where they're gonna go. So for on their side, like being acquired by these bigger companies totally makes sense and helps them live longer or their at least their technology can live longer.
0: Yeah, a million dollars goes a long way until you hire engineers or train an AI model. Then it's you know, and it's a whole nothing. zero or two short. So, yeah, it's expensive. Okay, so on the money side, though, my deal of the week is Metronome, which just raised $43 million in capital. And this is the nerdiest, wonkiest deal ever. So, Metronome has made software to help companies offer consumption-based billing, often in addition to traditional SaaS billing. So, if you think back a couple years ago, especially as Twilio's valuation had soared to the absolute Stratosphere during COVID, people were discussing how SaaS and the kind of per seat per year model had some inefficiencies for the buyer. Why not just offer software effectively, really as a service? Use as much as you pay for, pay for as much as you need. And, and then it turned out that that was a little bit tricky in certain cases. But Metronome has seen six x ARR growth and just put together a round that uh, dramatically increases valuation. So I think there must be a lot of market demand for this stuff, anyways.
2: Yeah, that is very wonky. And I'm wondering where they found the niche, like where you mentioned that it's complicated. So is this most suited for the smallest of smallest businesses that periodically use or need the software, but not necessarily on a consistent basis? Like who is the customer here?
0: So, the best way to explain this is the recent AI boom has been a boom for Metronome because they are helping a lot of AI companies offer their services on a pay-as-you-need basis. And, you know, we're talking names like OpenAI, Anthropic, the big model companies. And so, as they've scaled, because they're using Metronome's tech – Metronome has seen its own revenue go up because, shockingly enough, Kirsten, they are charging for their product also on a consumption basis. So as their customers <laughs> use more of it, by charging their customers for using more of it, Metronome does well. So essentially, Metronome is like the second order growth effect of how fast OpenAI and Anthropic are scaling themselves, if you want to think about it that way. Okay. And the reason why I bring all that up is because, you know, often if you're going to make um, kind of like an API call to an AI model, you pay per how much you're using. Ergo, metronome. The thing is, I recently chewed through some data from a company called Maxio, which was the result of a merger of chargeify and SaaS Optics, if I recall correctly. It's a SaaS company. And they were taking a look at the growth rates for companies that charge for software on a per seat basis, so subscription or consumption, which is what we're talking about here. And the data is really kind of interesting. If you are a very small software company, growing on a consumption basis is very, very tough, but accelerates as you get bigger. So as you get bigger using that model, you tend to grow faster. SaaS, or subscription, on the other hand, is much more stable, so it's a little easier at the front, but doesn't grow as fast later on. And so I think we're seeing some more divergence in how software companies charge for their work that's not just in, in model type, but also in kind of like the shape of the business it forms. And so I'm very excited about all of this. But yeah, 43 mil, led by NEA, didn't share the valuation. PitchBook says it's $350 million, post money up from about $150 million post set in their Series A back in 2021. So for a fintech, doubling
2: since 21, who else is doing that? It's a winner. Do they have any other competitors? Is this a market for the taking or are there others chomping at their heels? Well, I mean, you can think about
0: companies that have been well-known for the subscription business model for a long time. I mean, Zora is public. Sure, of course, sure. I think there's companies that are doing this type of work, I think archetype is one. My memory is a little blank here, Christian. This is a great question that I should have prepped for. Uh, but no, I presume that there's more than one company doing this because there's always more than one, is my is my take on things.
2: Okay, so here's my very quick follow-up question to okay. it. How you talked about the difference between, you know, your traditional subscription SaaS and then this consumption-based model, do you see, even though it's kind of a little bit niche and a little bit complicated, do you see a point where this will pivot More companies will pivot to that model as they scale, like they'll switch from that stable SaaS model to more of a consumption model. And therefore, we're going to start seeing more of these. I'm asking for a prediction here.
0: So I think the prediction is that the dichotomous choice between one or the other is false. I think what we're going to instead see is companies that offer some of their software or capabilities on a SaaS basis, and then some of them that are offered more on a consumption basis. And honestly, uh, this is actually a fun question, because I think what we will see is a lot of companies offer their kind of core offering on a subscription basis, but then allow for AI usage on a usage basis, because they probably don't want to guess what everyone's AI usage is going to be, and then have edge cases blowing the economics out of the water. So that's, I can kind of see everyone ending up with the 2 business model, frankly, I think that'd be cool. Interesting. Yeah. But enough about SaaS pricing and the nuances thereof. I know some of you are sitting there going, oh God, equity people be quiet. Talk about something I do care about. And so we will. We're going to talk about Block and PayPal right after this very short break. All right, Corrine, I presume you are a cash app user. I
1: am actually not. Really? Yeah, I know. Isn't that a surprise? Are you a Venmo user? I am a Venmo person, yes.
0: Kirsten, are you more Venmo or Cash App?
1: I
2: used to be more of a Cash App and it's gone more Venmo mostly because other people have. And so, but every time, every single time I volunteer for this nonprofit and I run their like little sale or whatever, we do Cash App. We don't do Venmo.
0: Interesting, because I'm 100% Venmo, but I figured I was in the minority and, and was uncool. But now I feel actually very much in good, good friendship here because we're talking about the companies behind those products. Block and PayPal, both of which are undergoing even more layoffs. The macro picture here, Kareem, we wrote about for TechCrunch Plus recently, is that tech layoffs have accelerated much more so than we saw in the back half of last year. And in fact, in January alone, according to layoffs to FYI, we have seen more layoffs in Q1 of this year thus far than in the last two quarters. So first of all, thoughts about the cuts. And then two, Kareem, what do you got for us on uh, Block and PayPal?
1: Yeah, well, I think the cuts are interesting that they're still happening. It felt like, you know, 2023 was like, okay, everybody's doing a correction. Like this makes sense. It's terrible. It makes sense. It makes sense. And now it's like, starting to make less and less sense from an outside perspective. I mean, businesses have to cut costs, and this is unfortunately one of the ways to do that. But what does it mean? What does it mean for these companies that they're doing that?
0: Well, I think it means that growth is not where they thought it was going to be, and there's less gross profit than expected,
2: Kirsten. So they're probably just looking at profitability and going, shit. Sure. That's probably part of it. I will say that you know historically, if it's publicly traded companies that we're talking about, they're oftentimes rewarded for cutting back. And layoffs traditionally happen in January and also at the end of the fiscal year, which is June, July time. So how much of this is about economic condition and how much of this is about well, we've made these cuts and been rewarded about it so far. Inflation is still kind of there. Let's do a few more cuts. And this is the time of year to do it. I think there is a combination of that happening in the marketplace right now. And so it's hard sometimes to pick, is the company hurting or is this opportunistic?
0: Oh, that's a really good question. And it's hard to say because both PayPal and Block don't report earnings for a couple of days. So when I was going through and prepping for this little segment, I was trying to figure out what's their financial performance? What can we take away from that? And the last thing we have is data through, you know, Q3, which by now is pretty dated. So, you know, in a couple of weeks time, we'll have more. But the thing that struck me was just how large these cuts are. You know, a thousand people at Block. That's a lot. And then at PayPal, it's going to be 2,500 people through both layoffs and also through just closing some roles. And I, I kind of think about the workers because in theory, right, everyone at those companies was doing things. And now there's fewer people to do the same number of things. And so does this just end up with more things per employee or are they actually going to do fewer things total? I, I, I worry.
2: Yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot more once earnings are reported, because is this an organizational shift, if you will? Um, Also, I think that we're still seeing, even though I agree that I thought it was a a lot of this was over in 2023, there was a lot of hiring that was going on and a little bit of overspending that was going on in 21, 22, 2022. And I'm wondering if that is still a hangover from that a little bit. But also, this may be the case of the companies reorganizing and either phasing out certain products and services. You know, hopefully it's not, oh, fewer people doing more things because that's not a great place to work. So we'll see how it all shakes out if this is more about, hey, we're actually phasing out certain products and services. And so therefore, we don't need these people anymore.
0: Yeah, the thing that I was always told about layoffs, if you're going to do them as a corporation, is to cut once, cut deep, and move on. These companies have cut several times and cut pretty deep. I mean, the block layoff is 10% of the staff, which is a lot, and the PayPal is 9 that's a lot. So I, I guess we will get more commentary about this in the earnings call. Where did they cut and so forth? But I, I think this the feeling of safety we all had as layoffs dwindled per month last year um, for this industry has certainly gone away. I, I I do wonder if it's efficiency or performance, but we've also seen companies like Okta recently cut employees, and they discussed getting to be a smaller, more nimble organization. Google is trying to cut back on bureaucracy and layers of management. It's it's almost like a like a feast famine cycle. Like tech gets a little high on its own supply, overhires, it hoards talent, and then suddenly they're like, "Oh, just kidding," and they try to shed talent as fast as they can. It's very human to keep going up and down like the bobbing of a boat in a very choppy lake.
2: Yeah, it's just not really great to be the ones bobbing in the lake, which is what's happening with tech workers right now. And and we are seeing that also in some cases, for instance, in the case of cruise where an event or incident (laughs) causes a great reckoning. Uh, And we also have that scenario happening uh, in the background with a few companies as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That that was a, it was a precipitating incident. I think you could say.
2: Correct. Yes. Yes. Sure. Uh, Karim, before we move on to talk about AI
0: and VC, last word to you, fintech layoffs, have we seen the worst of it this year or shall the blood continue to spill?
1: Unfortunately, I have a feeling that the blood will continue to spill. That is just my prediction because I just don't think that the great correction is over yet. And I think that, you know, there was a lot of bloat over the last year. I don't want to say that about fellow humans, um, but I think that that's true. And I think that now we are just, you know, seeing the outcome of that. And I don't think it'll stop. Yes.
0: Yes. All right, but let's end on a slightly more positive note because there's some cool developments in the world of venture capital and one company wants to go ahead and take AI and use it to ingest data into these firms. Kirsten, what's up with the fine folks over at Cap VC?
2: This is an interesting one. So Cap VC is launching a tool for venture capital firms using an AI-powered operating system. And my understanding is that basically ingests, sifts through all of this data and helps them kind of recognize the value proposition of various startups that they might invest in and make decisions. That's my understanding of So it's taking a lot of like unstructured data that a human being might pour over and Use their, let's say, gut and also their expertise and experience. Instead, this is an operating system that can do that, and then be used by the VC firm to, you know, make make choices on investments. Yeah, I
0: think this is fantastic. Anyone who's gone through enough earnings presentations from public companies knows that what you do is you get your finger on the scroll wheel, you open it and you go scroll, 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 like 40 pages of them talking about their market and their team and their recent offsite. And then finally you get to the damn income statement, which is what you want. And then you have to transcribe it by hand into your post and try not to make a mistake. It is tedious. It is silly. It is time consuming. And this is a great place I think to take you know, modern AI tools and apply them to humdrum digital work. Like this just makes a lot of sense to me. And also your venture capital intern from, you know, McKinsey or Wharton or whatever is probably partying all that anyway. So you don't want
1: them transcribing your numbers. You want AI to do it. AI never parties. I have a question. Is I mean, does this replace what a VC would be doing anyway, like a due diligence thing? Or will this just spit out the data and then, you know, people can look at it and, take whatever they want from it.
0: So there's, I think there's three bits to this. One is the ingestion and sorting of data. Two is the presentation of that data. And then what's also possible is applying AI to help you make decisions. I think the third bit, we'll see how well it works out. But in the case of VC, certainly the first two things are for sure and work and are going to save a lot of time. Go back in time to like, 2014, 2015, I was at TC in my first stint and there was reporting out that AP or Reuters was using what we call robots back then, AI, to write financial stories. And I and people were like, oh, this is going to replace journalists, you know, whatever, whatever. And I was like, that's cool because it's doing all the stuff that I do no value on. Right, and getting that out of the way so I can focus on what matters, um, because when Kirsten and I go through earnings reports, we don't need someone—we don't need to ourselves transcribe, you know, the history of their gross profit margins. We need to find the interesting nuance in the data itself, and that is going to be much harder for AI to I think to tease out. So, Kirsten, I think we'll still be employed in a couple years.
2: I, <laughs> I think we might be a little bit on different sides of that. When that whole thing was going on that you were referring to. I wasn't happy with that, of, of using AI to write financial stories, because I do think that the process, while if something collects the data and provides the data for me, I still want to ingest the data and write it. I don't want something writing as an article for me ever. As it applies to this CAPVC tool, if it is basically creating a more efficient way and accurate way. And accurate is very important here to sift through large reams of data and then deliver that in an organized way so that a human being can really look at that. And that creates some efficiency so that maybe they could, for instance, look at more startups in a shorter period of time. Great. That's the line for me, though, is Collecting and digesting and then presenting that data in interesting and smart ways. Great. After that, I'm not very comfortable.
0: Why don't I have this for my inbox? Right? Like, think about it this way. VCs get docs, they get PDFs, they get stuff from pitch, all these different services that people use to send pitch decks around to VCs and they provide analytics and how much is opened and who opened it and all that good stuff for founders. Yay. And I'm glad that VCs now have cap VC, but I just want this for my inbox. So it's like, all right, you've got 7,000 emails today. Here's the, you know, 94% of them are spam or whatever. And like, I, I feel like this should be applied to not just stuff for investors. Shit. I could use this for my life.
1: Totally. I think that's the value of AI. I'm, you know, in the same camp as Kirsten. Like, I don't want AI writing the stuff. I want AI to make it easier for me to write the stuff, right? And I think that that's, you know, hopefully that's what they're doing here. And, you know, in order to aggregate a lot more data quicker and then get a human to look at it and to figure out what the nuances are and to figure out how to talk about it and how to write about it. I think that that's like a very key point in all this, that all the you know, AI enthusiasts are like, it's going to replace every single job in the world. And I don't know if I want that.
0: I don't know if it'll replace every job in the world because I've tried to have AI write poetry many times. And let me tell you, <laughs> people are not impressed with the results. So at least we will have a market need for poets down the road. AI will not replace Thank that. Goodness. It's a high margin business, everybody. Get your verse. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, there are some other companies in this space. We know about companies like Deckmatch and Headline. We also talked about a company last year that was working on helping VC associates with AI. So it does seem that the AI boom that we're talking about in general in the world of tech is also coming from the money that often sits very much behind the technology products that we use every day. But. We are out of time, my friends. We have to leave it there. We will be back on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of next week, if not more frequently. But if you need even more from your fine friends on the Equity Crew, we are Equity Pod on X and Threads, and we are TechCrunch Pods over on TikTok. Kirsten, Kareem, you're the best. Thank you so much. Marianne will be back with us next week. We love you all.
2: Goodbye. Bye.